Look around at this great city of ours. What do you see? I see a multitude of amazing people. Over the next hour, Bill Wilson and Michael Lynn White will talk to some of these amazing people about topics that interest you and give you just what you need to kick off your week with a dang on the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. Good evening, Murfreesboro. You're listening to the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. I am Bill Wilson, also known as Mr. Murfreesboro, and we're here in the studio on Church Street in, for WGNS 1450 AM and 100.5 FM Talk Radio. You can watch this live on Facebook at the Mr. Murfreesboro page, and you'll be able to call in at 615-893-1450. And I'm so excited about tonight's show because he is this gentleman has become a friend of mine, and we both grew up here in Rutherford County. And if there was somebody who I wanted to emulate or be like, is uh, Thurman Mullins. Whoa, that's strong. What about that? That's strong, Bill. <laughs> I'm excited to have you because, man. From what I can tell, you could write a, a book, if they hadn't already a book, and then a movie about your life. And I know we're going to cover a lot of ground, but you're going to hear stories all about Murfreesboro. You may hear something about Vietnam. You may hear something about Charlie Daniels. You may hear something about a rodeo. You might hear something about the Bicentennial Mall or Cedars of Lebanon. Uh, but let's get right into it. Uh, Thank you for taking your time, Thurman. Glad to do it. I appreciate the opportunity, Bill. Yeah. I, it's um, it's always good to be here, and I've spent some time in WGNS's uh, control room a time or two before, and it's uh, like coming home. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Blackman, Tennessee, when you could get on a bicycle and a uh, horse and ride down to the Blackman store and. Uh, it started out with Polly Beatty had a, a little country store in an old church house. And uh, then when Larry McDonald got old enough and his family owned that property, they put in a mechanic shop and a grocery store. And nice, and that building's still there. It is? It's still there. And it's uh, right next to where the Manson house is that you're very familiar with, of course, Dr. Manson's old house. My first cousin lives there, yeah. That's what I'd heard. And um uh, we used to when we'd go to school in the mornings my dad and mother had a store on the square and i'd ride in and went to school at critchlow and they'd drop me off over at critchlow uh there was a mr swain that lived up there just about where the battlefield is and if you got there just at the wrong time mr swain was driving all of his milk cows out into the manson pike and he would drive them up about where ben hall mcfarland's place was just as you got to the curve and that's where the cows pastured all day. When you came home at night, it's sort of the same deal. They'd be bringing the cows back down to where Mr. Swain's house was. Thomas Swain? Uh, was that or is I'm his not dad? sure. I'm not sure. Okay. I, I just remember Swain. But um, if you if you got behind the cows, you might be late to school, you know. And uh, that's when Nestle Underwood was a principal over there. And uh, his wife taught piano and it was uh it was a different time and a good time and uh 
I'd spend a lot of time after school at the store and around the square. Pretty much knew everybody. And Blackman had a community center, too. The community center was already there when I was growing up, and um, and it was real active. And uh, they had started ha- already having the barbecue as far as back as I can remember. Which is a big, big to-do. Still is. I it episode, is. Yeah. And since they built everything up, um, in fact, Ben Blackman, the original Mr. Blackman's son, built the house that I grew up in. He built the house that my granddaddy also lived in. So one granddad lived a mile one direction. The other granddad, Granddad Mullins, he lived two miles the other direction. Wow. And both of them were farmers. And uh, That's what I was fixing to ask you. What did they both do? Both, they both And that was prevalent back then. Yeah, and uh, neither one of them ever owned a tractor. They, they used horses and mules. And uh, um, I had two brothers. Uh, my brother Charlie passed away, and he he always wanted to be at the store. That was where he was most comfortable. Jim, uh, the middle brother, hated the store. He hated to be in town. And he helped my granddaddy also a lot on the farm and Mr. Comer Cherry that lived in Blackman and a lot of the different people that were out there. And he always stayed as much as he could in the country. And uh, both of them drove trucks when they got out of high school and going to college for a time for Palmer Produce. And from that, Jim started driving a semi for a time. And then um, he would farm when he was home. And he was a worker and saved every nickel he could get his hands on and, wow. uh, and did real well. Um, I grew up to where I kind of liked both of them pretty well. And Daddy was a big believer in a garden. He was a big believer in uh, we always had pigs. And the That's cash. Herschel. Right, yeah, Herschel. Herschel uh-huh. yeah. And um, so, you know, again, um, on the square, you had the L&M Cafe back then. That was Lytle and Marie Arnett. They had a boy, Jimmy, my age. And so me and Jimmy at times would be able to run rampant around the square in the courthouse and all that stuff. And then uh, you had Moffitt's uh, Hobby Shop and Toys. And wow. they eventually um, put in a slot car racetrack in the bottom of the, in the basement right up here at the Hobby Shop. And then later that became the first music shop. Is that was that on Vine Street, or is mm-hmm. that the right one there. at the corner where the big building is today? That's where the big building yeah. is today. It's, Music it's, shop was there, uh, Taylor's Bushido, and then AG's was down there, too. Right, and um, it was uh, it, it was great times. Um, people didn't think anything when I got out of school when I was in the first grade at Critchlow. There'd be several of us kids walk downtown, and, and nobody thought anything about it, and uh They'd come out with the movie Song of the South, uh, Disney had. That's right, with the Bluebird. Right. Yeah. And, of course, Uncle Remus was just everybody's hero, kind of. Right. And um, Uncle Remus used to come and walk downtown with us. Had two big staves, and Uncle Remus would be going. And uh, that's who we thought he was, is Apple John. Apple John. Uh, And Apple John, I was always told, was born a slave, and that he lived in a house that had dirt floors. Um, he was We're talking always, about Apple John now. Yeah, Apple John. I've seen a picture of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, down at the Historical Society. Dick Shacklett uh, made a real excellent one. And one year, when I was overseas in the service, my folks would stretch it, what they might be able to get me for Christmas, because I couldn't have nothing <laughs> where I was at. And so they would buy stuff and send me pictures of it. 
And one Christmas, I got a real nice portrait that Dick Shacklett made of Apple John. He was kind of one of my heroes when I was growing up. Wow. He'd tell all these old stories, and the kids loved Was he a big guy? Was he? A, well, I was a little kid. So yeah, you know. so he was, but he had like a wooden, like a. He had two sticks he'd walk with when I knew him. He, right. And they were big. I mean, they were right. probably five or six foot. Right. And uh, he was always happy just, to, you know, ripping down the street. And um, we mentioned the other day, talking about Uncle Dave Macon, um, when I got my first horse, Uncle, Dave, uh, Uncle Dave's son, uh, Archie, was our horseshoer. And he would uh, come by, and uh, uh, he was a character and a nice guy. I mean, everybody liked, uh, liked uh, Mr. Macon, Archie. Yeah. But he shot our horses, and he, he was one of those that cut the steel he had the forge heated up. He when you say them. shot him, you they put shoes on. Put them. shoes on him. And while I was overseas, that's why that crossed my mind. Old Sandy died. She was my favorite mare, my first really good horse. Right. And um, they had two of her shoes bronze, and um, I put them on plaques, and I've got them in our house there now. And it just hit me one day because you take things like that for granted. I thought, you know, those are Sandy's shoes. But Uncle Dave Macon's boy made those things by hand. For, 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 yeah, for him. For, yeah, he made them by hand. And there's a museum of the Appalachians up in Norris, Tennessee. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've not. It's phenomenal. I, now, it? I hadn't been there in years. But when I was up there the last time, me and Ann, uh, they went as far east as Wilson and Rutherford counties. And they had a big display of Archie Macon's crafts, stuff that he had made out of steel and iron. Of course, he had a big display on Uncle Dave. Right. Uh, there was a guy in Wilson County who had built a uh, um, a uh, machine that would run. Um, the word just left me. I'm 74 years old, Bill. But whatever, um, you know, it was, it was something that never quit running. Right. But anyhow, it was a great big deal. And when the Yankees came through, he hid it in the cave. And, of course, he never could get it to work. But, anyway, that machine's up at the Museum of the Appalachians. Wow. They've got caskets. They've got different kinds of cabins and barns. And uh, there was some school teacher that started that thing. But in the warm weather, they'll blow a can, uh, an anvil where they'll take uh, black powder and see how like they can blacksmith stuff? Yeah. yeah. And then they'll have... Uh, people playing bluegrass around at the different places that's wild but it was um it was a great time in murfreesboro daddy had the store open from eight to five which meant he tried to be there by seven thirty and never left before six it was always mullins jewel was always on the south side and right it, it never moved other well, than when jeff moved it it, Jeff and Tim. It started at 17 Southside the Square. Okay. Then it went to being um, uh, the building came open next to that, and that was 19 Southside the Square. That's where everybody remembers it being. Right. Then there was a shoe shop next to. Is that Martin's? Uh, no, no, no. This was um, uh, Mr. Dewey Coon and um, Mr. Scorchy Woodard. And um, they, uh, I think Scorchy, uh, Dewey got killed. He got, went right not long after they built the four-lane highway, he was walking across the four-lane and got hit by a car and killed. Right. And Mr. Woodard, um, him and his wife went to work. 
I don't know how that exactly was, but they were driving buses for like the um, uh, Westview Baptist, I believe. Right. And I don't know if that was kids going to school or if they had their own church. I don't know what the deal right. was there. But uh, real nice people. And so Daddy was able to get that building. And, uh, of course, it expand. And he had always said he was going to work till he was 100, and he made it till 96. And uh, he worked up until the day we carried him to the hospital the last time. And uh, he had actually sold the store to Charlie, and he put him a watch bench at home, and he just started just, over like he did back in the he beginning. He kept working. Kept Every working. time I would go by there, he always had that uh, – I don't know what they call it, that little eye set thing where he was always looking at jewels or whatever. Yeah. Never, I mean, he always had that on. Well, it got to the point, um, this goes back 20 or 30 years ago, that people quit learning how to fix watches. And he would have watches sent to him from New York City, California. They'd mail them in? Mail them in. Really? And now. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he had a, a huge watch collection and what a lot of people didn't realize was anytime you took your watch in and had it worked on he put a little number in it and then he had a log book and he'd have and all the watchmakers did that but he keep could look up at, with it he yeah. could look at a watch and say oh you had that cleaned over at bell's jewelers three years ago right. and you come in with it and you say hey you cleaned this last year and it quit running right he could open it up and he go no you had that over at bales it you know wasn't they, here and, and same vice versa right there. right and uh, that was what was so great about those times was uh if, if uh you came in and you needed five griffin charms which was a popular brand there for a while heads that have baby heads little boys right little girls ponytails go around the uh, bracelet yeah, or whatever charm bracelet yeah so say we only had three of them and you needed five We'd order them, but I'd go, let's call over to uh, Ms. Harney's over at Bales. I'd go over there, or they might call Ms. Lacey Wellchance up at Altman's. And by the same token, if they were short of something and we had it, we was glad to trade with Y'all worked together. Yeah, and uh, I did a lot of engraving. I started engraving when I was like eight or nine. Wow. And I did uh, a lot of stuff for Altman's and for Bales and periodically they'd have somebody engraving and then they wouldn't and you know but um i always i, I didn't i knew i didn't want to sit behind a desk you, you didn't want to you didn't want to be in the jury jewelry business. business no uh, and daddy he always said son said you need to find something you like he said you know said it, it that's what you're going to be doing from now on you need to be doing something you like and so there was a guy named paul Holcomb that um built a rodeo arena up at rock island tennessee yeah. and uh there were three or four boys from blackman and salem and that i run around with jeff dismukes and roger smith and uh kenneth haynes and different ones and we'd ride up to rock island and um that's where i started riding bulls and bareback horses great place to learn and i met Liesel harris up there who was collier from collierville and Liesl would come up with Butch Berry, who was a rodeo clown from Franklin. And they would turn bulls out of the chutes. And Mr. Paul had built the beautiful arena. And uh, Liesl said the only arena better than that one that he had ever worked at that time was down in Orlando or Kissimmee at the Kissimmee Ar Arena. 
But anyway, he'd go up there and they'd practice fighting bulls. We could buck them out and, you know, learn, basically. And um, got to know Liesl pretty good. And then Liesl, he wound up on Hee Haw and did some movies, you know. He was a Hall of Famer, wasn't he? He He was a a rodeo Hall of Famer several times. And uh, he was was first rate. But, yeah, it it was good times. Right. We're going to continue here in a few minutes. We're going to take a break. We're here with Thurman Mullins. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Bill. Did you know I also sell for Parks Real Estate? Meredith Thomas and I make up the Thomas Wilson team. We have over 25 years of real estate experience and have helped nearly 1,000 families buy and sell real estate here in Murfreesboro, Rutherford County, and Middle Tennessee. Why not choose us to help you and your family with all your real estate needs? Give us a call at 615-406-5872 or 615-896-4040. Or you can follow me at Mr. Murfreesboro on Facebook or Instagram. Curve them, crack them, or bend them. We can mend them. Come by Wheelworks, located 516 South Church Street. For a free estimate, we also sell performance and passenger tires, as well as aftermarket and factory wheels. We also install lift kits, and we've been sponsoring and serving this community for 15 years. Come see us at Wheelworks at 516 South Church Street, or give us a call at 615-849-3848. Rhonda McCrary has been in the mortgage business for 29 years. She was voted as a favorite mortgage loan officer in the 2018 and 2019 DJ Ruthie Awards, and she's a proud member of the Middle Tennessee State University 1989 graduating class. She specializes in all types of mortgage products and takes pride in going the extra mile and personally taking care of her customers. You can visit her at 1639 Medical Center Parkway, Suite 203 here in Murfreesboro. Reach her by phone, 615-419-9193, or even apply online at loansbyrhonda.com. Welcome back to the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. We're here with Thurman Mullins. Um, we're, you're 17 now, and you're at Rock Island. You're going to cowboy school or uh, bull riding school, horseback riding. I mean, so you're 17 at Rock Island. Take us from there. Well, uh, there was a young man named David Smith from Sparta that was just, he was good, really good, a lot better than I'd ever be. And uh, he was a bull rider, and... Uh, Mr. Paul Holcomb, he moved up there from Yoakum, Texas, uh, had a big ranch in Texas, and his wife stayed down there. Uh, he had a daughter, Coy, that moved up here with him, and uh, Coy was um, just about as uh, big around as she was, tall, and uh, just, I thought the world, everybody liked Coy. She right. Just, she was Sweetheart. Nice girl. Yeah. And uh, uh, Mr. Paul worshipped her, and um, we'd be up at Rock Island, and they had something like a little small local Lions Club or Kiwanis or something that would sell tickets, but nobody bought any tickets because everybody they was get riding or getting them <laughs> free. And Paul had these big lights, and it cost money to turn those lights on. And he'd have an announcer, he'd have flaggers, he'd have the whole deal. And we were down there one night, and Coy was a hand. It still is. I mean, she could rope, she could do it all. And at um, uh, any rate, somebody asked Paul, he said, Mr. Paul says, there ain't no way you're not losing your shirt doing this every week. So right. said, why do you do it? And he said, you see, he always kept a big chew of plug tobacco. And he said, you see that our girl out there on that horse? And I said, yeah. He said, she's having fun. And I know right where she's at. 
And he said, she's not out she's here running around. Fun, yeah. As long as she's having fun, <laughs> That's I'm going to keep having them. And she married a good boy, Jim Adcock, that was a good bareback rider. And, uh, but at any rate, it was kind of funny. Um, while they were in school, we were started MTSU and we had a little rodeo club. And for about two years, we actually had rodeo teams. And we would compete against Tennessee Tech and UT Martin. Where would y'all ride it? Was it over uh, at the college? We were bucking out over at uh, Franklin. Bucking we, out, I love it. <laughs> but when we were, when uh, we were doing most of our practicing up at Paul's, and then we had a college rodeo. I've got pictures of the old dairy barn that sat right there beside where the ag building is. Here, uh, here, on, here, in Murfreesboro, right yeah. on bulls and bareback horses. I pictures of me with that barn behind us where we had the little college rodeos there. Uh, when I came back out of the service, nobody was riding. Uh, they still had a club, and they liked rodeos, and they'd go to rodeos. Tex had folded as far as the team went. Right. UT Martin today has one of the best rodeo programs in the nation. Wow. They're as big as Sol Ross in Texas or any of them. And a lot of young people that want a rodeo, they want to go to UT Martin. Right. But uh, Coy, uh, right after her and Jim got married uh, they asked me they said if you know of a house or anything somebody could fix up and um you know have a deal on rent because they were struggling they were working and going right. to school and um miss Beatty called me and she said thurman do you know of a good young couple that would be interested in living in this house talking about the old dr manson house right and fixing it up and we just trade out them fixing up the house for the rent I said, well, I've got a couple. And I said, this boy can do anything. He's right. grown up on a farm. Good He's carpenter. a carpenter. Yeah. He can do, do it all. So I told Jim and Coy about it. And I hadn't been in that old house in years. And nobody had. I mean, right. they're just sitting there. And we went in and, and the stairs were falling. And paper, you know, right. the walls was coming down. And Coy's eyes were that big. And she's looking around. She said, Jim. She said, we got married, hon. Said, I said, whither thou goest, I goest. But said, I ain't going in there. <laughs> she well, went out the door. I can tell you it's, it's well maintained. Oh, it's now nice. Because it, Carrie and Charlie have really taken care of They've really. It's I mean, it's, it's nice. a, well, it's the oldest house in Rutherford County. Oh, it was yeah. built in 1807. And there's been a family member, I think, and Carrie can correct me that that's lived there since then yeah and there's been times where it was vacant but the yeah, family had right. it and that was during one of those times in the house like a lot of old houses oh i love i love just sitting there and then um anyway me and david we started going to ira rodeos at the time that's ipra and i rode in detroit and california we went all over yep, and traveled and traveled and and rode and then um, i started clowning for a little outfit called b and m rodeo company and they mostly did rodeos from uh, up in um, off fort campbell to north alabama you know right. didn't really go far and um, first rodeo i ever took into i was clowning at uh, fort campbell and they had an old bull called Big Red, and you Big learned Red. them, and you knew them like you did people. And I mean, Big Red would do all he could to keep from stepping on you. He just big old puppy. Yeah. And this boy had him drawn, and he said, uh, "Now he said, uh, he said, can you turn him, make him spin?" Spin. And I said, "Yeah, I can get, I can get Red to spin." And uh, Wayne Pennington was a barrel clown, and this contract act, and he was out there in the, in his barrel. 
So Big Red comes out, and I'm showing out. I'm slapping Big Red in the face, and I'm Big Red, Big Red. And he's going around. Well, this kid comes off, and I look back toward the barrel, and all I hear is the crowd going, <gasps> and about that time, Big Red just piled right <laughs> You know, piled right you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm up staggering, and Pennington's just dying laughing because he says, uh, Big Red's Go to his baby. head, Mullins. Go to his head. And I'm like, I don't know where my head is. And about that time, Red hit me again and picked me up, carried me a few feet, and just tossed me. And I was between him and the stripping chute. It wasn't where he was really gunning for me. It was just right. I was in his way, and right. he was going from point A to point B. Pennington was just dying laughing. And I always tell that. I knew then I, that Ann was practical because when I was coming around, I remember asking, checking my pocket, see if I had my car keys in there because she needed to get home. <laughs> she was, she That's was for the bull. So one. how old were you when, I mean, when do you, when do you enlist to, to go to, to Vietnam? I did that in 68, and then um, what had actually happened, I joined the U.S. Naval Reserves, and the Naval Reserve Center for Murfreesboro was in the old Jennings and Ayers funeral home a block off of uh, East Main. Not where it's at today. No, no. Okay. But that's that's when they moved, and it became the U.S. Naval Reserve Training Center. Well, they had a program where you could enlist, and you'd go to boot camp, and then you'd go to a ship for two weeks, and then you'd come home for a year. Right. And you'd go to drills every week, and then you'd go on two years active. And the selling point to it was, well, Vietnam might be over. And when you went through all of this, um, you'd make some rank. So you wouldn't be right. starting out at the very bottom. Private. Well, when I was in college, you were required to take ROTC the first two years if you hadn't been in the service. And if you were taking ROTC, they had forest raiders that would go out and do field maneuvers. Right. And they had the Sam Davis Rifles drill team. And you'd go to Mardi Gras and Savannah and some pretty decent trips. So I thought, you know, if I'm in this thing anyway, I might as well get on the drill team. This goes right. back to when I was 18. Well, you'd learn to do the Queen Anne salutes and all the drill maneuvers and all of that. Well, when I got up to Great Lakes and uh, we were drilling, uh, they'd leave two behind every day when everybody went to lunch to police the barracks. And you did not touch those rifles. I mean, you just did not. You had them stacked there, some old Springfields. And there was a boy that had gone to VMI, Virginia Military Institute. Big time, yeah. And me and him got to talking, and he'd been on a drill team. Wasn't nobody around, so being two kids, we take out two of them rifles, and we're standing there doing the twirls and the spins, and look up, and I hear somebody yelling, you know, at the top of their lungs, and I go, oh, thunder, we're we're done. (laughs) So it was a guy that uh, was our drill instructor, and he says, come in my office, and we both went in there and put the rifles up, and he chewed on us just for about two seconds, and he says, where'd you learn all that? And I said, well, I had two years ROTC, and this boy had a year at VMI. He said, you're my new RPOC, and every drilling class had a, with the Navy, it was called a Recruit Petty Officer in Charge, and they called them RPOCs. So I, I became the RPOC, and this boy was my assistant RPOC. Well, when they graduated, because of that, and we was winning all the marches, they'd, you know, they'd have competitions, <laughs> uh, we wound up that I was brigade commander for the uh, graduation class. Well, we go down to the destroyer, and they got a storm blowing in. This is out of Mayport, Florida. 
we go out and they cut the engines on the ship so they won't be banging up against one another in right. the, uh, uh, there where they had them tied up. And I think that was the sickest I ever been. Well, when I got back uh, to start my year at home, uh, the recruiter's name was Gandy, and he was there full time at the uh, at the old mortuary, U.S. Navy training center. <laughs> and he says, "How did you like that uh, sea duty?" I said, "I have piled up." I said, "I'm going to die." I said, and everybody tells me that I you either have the stomach for it or you don't. Well, and they said the destroyer's the worst as far as they call them tin cans, and there's right. a reason for that. So uh, he said, uh, boy, everybody loves the na- loves sea duty. I said, man, I, I'm going to die if I do that for a year, two years. And he said, uh, I've been looking at your records and said, you've got some college and you've got the, um, uh, uh, you like animals. said, you'd make a corpsman. I said, what does a corpsman do? He said, best job in the Navy. I said, well, what is it? And he said, work in the hospital nine to five. You'd probably be down here at Millington at Memphis or corpus christi you like the cowboy and got all the pretty nurses and right. he was really <laughs> selling this thing but he said you got to extend he said it's an 18 week class a school and i says what about destroyers they got corpsmen he said man said you'd have to be a first class or a chief to be on a destroyer he said no nah, you wouldn't said you might be on an aircraft carrier and said they don't move he said right said uh, you wouldn't have any problem i said well i think i want to be one of them corpsmen and so i signed up for course school and, of course, Vietnam's really going strong about that time. Well, I'm supposed to be home a year in three weeks. I go to the mailbox, and I've got orders in two weeks to be in San Diego. So I go up and see Candy. He says, well, oh, don't worry about it. He said, you'll get your active duty behind you. I said, well, I've, I've got plans. Well, I'm going to be home for a year. And he says, well, says, ain't nothing we can do about it. you got to go to San Diego. So when I get to San Diego, they had a big building, and that building's still there. It's San Diego City Parks now. Back then, it belonged to the Navy. But that's where you checked in. And when I went in, they had pictures of all these corpsmen on the wall wearing Marine uniforms, and they had Navy insignia. And I asked the guy, and I what's said, that up? what's happening? And he says, you're kidding. I said, no. He says, where do you think the Marine Corps gets their corpsmen? I said, I never thought about it. He said, you will. You had no, you had no idea. <laughs> and the core school was tough. It, it was probably the hardest school I ever had. It was probably the best school. I never had anything before or since to match it. Was it in California? It was in California. San Diego, okay. Balboa Park. And if you didn't pass every single course at the end of two weeks, you went back and, and started, started over. over. <clears throat> After three times, you were out. Well, when I got out of course school, I was sent to Ghana, Guam, which is like on the other end of the world, and it's 30 miles long, seven miles wide. Right. And uh, I worked in Aravac ward, and they would fly half the fresh wounded Navy and Marines out of Vietnam to Ghana, Guam, and the other half would go to Yakuska, Japan. So what we did, the ward I was on, every night somewhere around 9 to 2 in the morning, Here'd come buses from Anderson Air Force Base, and they'd gutted them and had litters in them. And we'd get anywhere from 80 to 100 fresh wounded a night. Some of them was minor injuries, short-timers, getting ready to go home. Right. Some of them were amputees. It was just, you never knew. From the battlefront. From the battlefront. And we would get them in. If they could have them, they got hamburgers and french fries. But, I mean, they backed up to a loading dock, and we unloaded them, put them to bed 
checked their IVs, their meds, and got them straightened out. Doctors are going through, checking them, deciding which wards they're going to go to the next morning. Um, a handful of cases might get taken out right then that were more emergency. And if we had a storm blowing in Guam, Yakuska, Japan got all of ours. And if they had a storm blowing in Yakuska, we got Don't all got of them. theirs. So we had a big annex that we could open up and joined our ward. Well, after six months of that, and almost every Marine that come through, and we had some corpsmen on the ward that had been to Vietnam with the Marines, and um, almost every one of them eventually would say, uh, Doc, who was you in the Marines with? And I'd go, well, I never have been with the Marines. I've just been working here at the hospital. That's okay. They was all decent about it, but it's sort of like <laughs> second-class right. citizen. <laughs> right. you know? So at six months, I had all the Guam I wanted. So I put in for... Um, uh, I volunteered for Vietnam and the Marines. Well, that happened real quick. And so, that was in '69, right? Yeah, '69. Right. And I was sent to uh, Camp Pendleton, and there you go through FMAF or 8404 school. That's Fleet Marine Force School. And when you went through that school, um, it was another boot camp basically. But this was with more shooting, desert, hills, PT. Right. And they were converting Navy corpsmen into the Marine Corps way of looking at life. And then um, uh, I went through RIP there, which is Recon Indoctrination Program. And when I went to Vietnam, we landed there at Airport 15 in Da Nang. I had orders to go to First Recon. Well, they pulled several of us out, and they said, uh, you, 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 come over here with your papers and your sea bags. And... I thought, this is strange, you know, be leaving this time of night to go uh, out to your units, but whatever. And um, they said, you guys are going to 3rd Marines. And I said, I got orders to 1st Marines. He said, they've just been changed. He said, they're short of corpsmen up there, and that's right. what you do. So the next morning, I was at Dong Ha up on the DMZ. Then after about three weeks, they got their replacement corpsmen in, and I was able to get back down to 1st Recon. And then with recon, a corpsman, most people think of a corpsman as carrying a 45 pistol in a Unit 1 bag. Um, corpsman uh, with recon, I carried an M79 uh, backpack with 25 HEs, 15 shotguns, two lungs, two smokes, two gases, uh, 20 magazines, M16 ammo, carried an M16, anywhere from 5 to 10 canteens of water. Claymore, gas mask, two gas on your legs. Several pounds of stuff. Oh, yeah. And your Unit 1 medical bag, I'd wear it right here. And this book, of course, you can't see this on the radio, but this right here would be where we were getting on an observation post, getting ready to go out to uh, to uh, uh, on a day patrol. And we right. would go up on an observation post periodically. And um, there we didn't carry all the gear, but... Still, when you went out, you couldn't carry somebody just for medical purposes with a recon team. And that was me there on Christmas Day in 1969. That's you? Mm-hmm. And I always said recon's uh, motto was swift, silent, and deadly. And now I'm down to slow, shaky, and deaf. <laughs> We're having to take all our old recons and put them back in gear. So that's and, you right there. Yeah, that's me, the the dock in it. And that was what was kind of funny. You were always a corpsman. And the Marines, till, till they saw you in action out on a patrol, when they started calling you dock, you'd been accepted. 
So they called was, you Doc. So you were there mainly to, 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 I mean, you were there in Vietnam, and it was taking care of wounded. Uh, that was the priority. Wounded. Yeah. And, but when you got in a firefight or. You, you're, you're a firefighter. I, I mean, did, you're a, Yeah, I did prisoner snatches. And actually, during World War II, the Germans and the Americans in Europe more or less honored the Red Crosses. What they found out when they started fighting the Asians, the Japanese in Guadalcanal, uh, Iwo Jima, wherever, Okinawa, they made targets out of the Red Crosses. And so there, the, the corpsmen started carrying, wearing gear to look like a Marine. They carried, right. uh, back at that time, M1s or whatever. Right. Um, with, in our case, I don't ever remember seeing a corpsman, even when I was around the grunts, uh, which is what we call the guys that just stayed the, out year round. Yeah. Um, the advantage to recon was you'd only go out on patrol six, eight man teams. And our job would be camouflaged to find them, call in artillery on them, or call in numbers, back off, try to get out. And so it was like contact. Rambo. I mean, it was yeah. like. In uh, some way. Yeah, you wore makeup and hid in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> you wore makeup and hid in the jungle. And then you call and you call in the right. the Air Force. Yeah, and they uh, and, and artillery. And it was funny. They would be sending in shells from ships. And I mean, putting Just them right them on out, the money. Yeah. And you, you call in an arc light. And with recon, we never went into an area where there were supposed to be friendlies. So you didn't it, have to worry if you got in a firefight, a friend, yeah. you didn't have to call back and say, hey, we're in a firefight. Uh, right. They sent us um, where they thought they were. You know where the enemy was, but a lot in Vietnam, they had tunnels. Oh, they And they tunnels would jump up out of a tunnel. Oh, yeah, spider hole. They used their children as decoy or whatever, and they would. Uh, Some would. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it was funny. Uh, like I say, we'd have an observation post. Ours was between Ganoi Island and the uh, Quezon Mountains. And the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were trying to send people down either side of that Hill 119 that that picture was made on to Da Nang. Right. And our job was to catch them, block them, run interference. But when we went up on OP, it was almost like... Um, uh, almost like in-country R&R for, for us, right. what we were used to doing. And we'd run night ambushes, and there were two veils down below us, pretty good distance away, but we could see them. They could come out and work in their paddies during the day. and then, Rice paddies. Yeah, rice paddies. And then uh, they weren't allowed to be out of their veils at night. Right. Now, if um, periodically... Uh, even a, a Vietnamese that was innocent might trip a booby trap at some Viet Cong or somebody had set. But they would bring their wounded halfway uphill 119. And the so they named them what they named them hills like I mean, oh, numbers yeah. hill 119. Right. Okay, go ahead. I'm so, sorry. No, no, that's fine. We would have uh, as a corpsman, I would go down, I'd carry my rifle, carry probably a couple of hand grenades, but I'd have my unit one, my IV bottles, all of that stuff. And uh, I'd have a radio man, usually Mike Carver, and then I had a guy, um, uh, two or three, and there's one boy, a Bayek, that could speak fluent Vietnamese. I could speak a little back then. That's but helpful. He, but he could speak fluent. And yeah. he stayed up there year-round, where we would come and we would leave, and here come another platoon of recons. They would leave, here come another platoon, and we'd go back. You know, is that kind of a leapfrog right. deal. And... Uh, but I knew just about all the Vietnamese in those villages, and 
they called a corpsman boxy. That was the doc. And um, they'd see you come, and you'd have kids all over you, and I'd always have folks send me candy from Yeah, I was going to say chocolate. And, or... and uh, there, the, uh, there was an old woman we called the one-armed bandit. And uh, she's, I've got pictures of her, and, and I'd get these uh, little Schimmel Pinnock cigars shipped. My folks she loved them? Oh, she loved them cigars. And, and uh, she was always hitting up on me for Darvons and aspirin. And she said, boxy, boxy, dial, dial, talking about dial was pain. She said, dial, dial. And, and Darvin, I guess, was pain medication. Yeah, yeah. was pain medication. And uh, uh, and occasionally you'd have some of them that were injured pretty bad. And right. A lot of times just sick. Uh, a lot of their problems were cleanliness i mean yeah. just to be fair in some of those veils sure. uh, the water the quality of the water and the way they right the way they grew up and the way they worked and of course they didn't have a real long lifespan but let me ask you this do you, have you i know i'm we're not gonna get into politics and all that stuff but did vietnam have you ever seen any of the vietnam movies are you yeah do, is there any that are like realistic or most some of them that are, are garbage. Not garbage most of them are garbage are any of yeah. them that you would say hey that's that's the, decent the, uh, there's a couple and the only one that comes to mind real quick is we were soldiers once and young that was a mel gibson movie uh, it was a true story it was about uh, it's army yeah and it's about the first big battle that they had in Idrang valley and uh, of course that's before i ever went over there hamburger but, hill when was yeah. that was that in the six that was uh probably i tell you i had a cousin uh robert boyd uh his mother and dad his dad worked at mtsu in maintenance and he was an only child, and Bobby pulled three tours in Nam. He was a MTSU ROTC lieutenant, and he was killed at Hamburger Hill. At Hamburger Hill. He was, and I had coffee with Bobby. He had his uniform on, which was already starting to get where that wasn't real popular around the MTSU with some of the kids. Right. But they had a place they called the Tea Room at Face Tennessee Boulevard. And yeah. And you had that big room upstairs in that building, and... Down there, they had hamburgers, hot dogs, a jukebox, and right. cokes and stuff. And me and Bobby sat down there and drank a cup of coffee, and I was getting ready to go probably to uh, Guam. But we were talking about all of that, and then he was killed not real long after he got back. After y'all had met. After he got back over there. and uh, uh, So but, you come back in 1970 70. or 71. You get back to Murfreesboro. Yeah. Murfreesboro's, what, uh, 20,000 people, 25,000, 1970? Yeah. Well, when I started MTSU in 66, the ag department was in Army barracks, just left over from the maneuvers. And there was a little house that sat right there where, um, right beside the dairy barn. Right. And they were milking in the barn. Uh, there were four guys, I think it was, lived up there. Um, uh, that one of the Adcock boys, uh, Bill Adcock, was actually living there. Harold Lynch. There was three or four guys living there. Right. They milked. They worked on the college farm as part of their scholarship. And then when I came back, they had built the big building that's there now. Right. And they converted the dairy barn into a uh, art barn. That's so, right. The art barn. So you threw all your Aggies. Over here with next the artsies, to all the guys. With the artsies and the Aggies. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but you know, MTSU had a uh, an airport, an airfield where people landed back in the day. Well, they had oh, airplanes yeah. in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Did, so, well, Miller Lanier is a relative of mine. 
and uh, had two daughters here in Murfreesboro, and one of them that was either my age or your younger married a boy I went to school with, Joe Patty. But Miller Lanier was a pioneer on the Murfreesboro Airport. And my oldest daughter, Melanie, we've got three girls, Melanie and Jenny and Amanda, and all of them in education. Right. Melanie was doing a project at school, and she had heard that if you were in Washington, D.C., you could go buy the Smithsonian Aeronautics thing, and they just give you all kinds of stuff for kids to use. And we went up there with Charlie. He got the Silver Helmet Award, and he invited me and Ann to go up with him, kind of as his escorts. Is that where you got to wear the silver helmet? Is well, that uh, uh, like on Animal House where the guy was uh, riding the horse with the silver? That's the, this one about I, this top. Okay. <laughs> but it was a big you, deal to get it. That's you a know. cool thing. I want to get it. I know we're I'm going to have to have you on but, again. But what, stay real quick. We went in the aeronautics thing, and they said, oh, we're sorry. We don't have anything. We quit doing that years ago. And I said, oh, that's fine. This guy says, where are you from? I said, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Murfreesboro. He said, did you ever hear Miller Lanier? I said, yeah, he's kin to my mother or his wife is. I'm not sure how that works. He said, oh, and he started in about Miller Lanier. He's like a legend in D.C. And I'd been around him a lot. And I had you no had no clue. idea. Yeah. No. What a, let's tell a few stories about when you were a kid, uh, the centennial of the Battle of Murfreesboro, or maybe the Civil War. Right. Tell us about about the well, cannons that <laughs> they went all out when they had the uh, civil war centennial they brought the locomotive the general into town they um i tell you what we're going to take a break i don't mean to interrupt and then we're gonna uh i want to hear the story about that and then about sh- shooting birds at the courthouse all right Old Stone Fort Golf Course is the place for you to get away for the day to play golf. Located right next to the beautiful Duck River and only five minutes from I-24. Whether you're a beginner or avid golfer, Old Stone Fort Golf Course is ideal for you. Golf carts are available and there is a golf shop. You can play nine holes for $9 and kids 12 and under play for free. They are located at 1017 Country Club Lane in Manchester, Tennessee. You can call for a tee time at 931-954-0366. You can also follow Old Stone Fort Golf Course on Facebook. Did you know there is a new title and escrow company in town, and they have 20-plus years of experience in the business? For all of your real estate closings, contact Authority Title at 615-819-5880. You can also stop by their Brandy Wine office located at 319 Hickerson Drive just off of the square. They are our preferred real estate partner. You can also follow them at Authoritarian's Escrow on Facebook. Good evening, everybody. This is Mr. Murfreesboro, and you're listening to the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. And we have been joined in the studio with Thurman Mullins. And man, we're going to have to you're going to have to come back because uh, we haven't got to Charlie Daniels or any other things. But I want to say happy birthday to my mother's birthday. She she won't want me to tell her she's going to be 88 tomorrow. Happy mm-hmm. birthday, mom! And then Meredith, my better half. Uh, her birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday, honey. And then her mom's birthday is Wednesday, the tw- 24th. So every two days, I've got birthdays going on. <laughs> but happy birthday. Love all y'all. Um, and I want to thank all of our sponsors. Rhonda McCreary with First Horizon Bank. If you need a loan, 
Rhonda McCree will take great care of you. Uh, Mitch Robinson with Wheel Works here on South Church Street. If you have any problems with wheels or tires, Mitch Robinson can take good care of you. Uh, if you need a haircut, go by and see Jason Rigney at Drake's Barbershop on Memorial. And they do a, uh, he's a veteran, and you get a discount as a veteran. And if you need a closing, you go by and see Tabitha King at Authority Tile and Escrow. And then thanks to Judy and Tink Driver with Old Stone Fort Golf Course uh, for being a sponsor of this show. Now, we're going, we only got about 10 minutes or so, but tell us the story about uh, when you were a youngster, the cannons going up. Oh, yeah. They, they had, uh, when they did the Civil War Centennial, it was amazing. Goldstein's. I uh, had a lady decorate all her windows, and I wound up, Mr. Goldstein gave me all the fake Confederate money. But, I mean, it was reproduction <laughs> the fake stuff. Confederate <laughs> he he uh, posters. It was neat. But the whole town went all out for it, and uh, they had a cannon set up facing down East Main Street. From the you, courthouse. From yeah. the courthouse. And you could go down at 7 in the morning, and they were going to fire it at 7 o'clock every morning all week long. So my dad drove me to town early. We Mr. got up Herschel. there, and, you yeah. know, Herschel, and we get over there, and a guy do their little deal, and they load the cannon. And, of course, no load in it other than powder and wadding. And they touched the cannon off, and the, the vibration and the explosion took out most of the glass in A.L. Smith Drugstore, <laughs> Commerce Union Bank. Which is on Martin the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was an embarrassing situation for them. So they decided the next day, you know, we've done that much damage, you'll go ahead and do it. We'll just cut the powder load. So they did. They cut the powder load, went in, and what glass they didn't get out of those three buildings the day before, they took out that day. So they <laughs> just did like uh, the tornado of 1913, but with, with human error with the cannon, there was supposed to be something really cool. Oh, yeah. And so uh, that ended the cannon down the They ended but, the cannon. And a lot of people don't realize, and I used to tell the stories about how when i was a kid in the 70s people on saturdays would come up and the ladies would go shopping yeah. and the men would be over there whittling but they i remember they would come down if you had a shotgun and i think bubba woodfin may have been on this and, and yeah, you could probably name it. the people but they used to come down and shoot birds off the we did that either on give us a story about that way on holidays and what it was was they had a terrible problem uh, with bird poop. And, I mean, starlings. It, it, and yeah, starlings and uh, pigeons were a major problem. I mean, it was it's just life. I mean, you're either going to let them run over you and the town, and they would cover everything out there in the, around the courthouse in particular and cars and all that. And at that time, with the mentality and way people looked at it, nobody cared. And uh, it, you'd have the mayor and everybody go up there on the top of the courthouse. I've done it. There was all kind of people up there. And you just blow away the birds all day long. And it kept them down, kept them gone. And, and that, that worked pretty good. And I was telling you, it was like in Wilson County when I was at the Bicentennial Mall, when they were getting ready to bury the time capsules, they had a major problem in Lebanon, the same thing. With birds. With the birds. And... Nobody wanted you to shoot the little birds, but nobody wanted pigeon poop and blackbird poop all over the cars and the Tearing streets up and the sidewalks paint. Did, yeah. and all of that. And uh, the day they did the uh, time capsules, bearing them, each county could put stuff in them. Mae Beavers was a senator from Wilson County, and she had on a cap with uh, 
I'll say Dern, but it had uh, Dern pigeons. Dern say. pigeons. It looked like it had pigeon poop. Her language was a little stronger than her cap. Before they sealed the uh, capsule, she tossed that in there. So in, in the capsule? In the capsule. So in 2096, when they open up the Wilson County time capsule, they're going to find <laughs> a ball cap cussing pigeons. But, That's funny. But it was, um, they had, uh, they hung Sam Davis, down to Sam Davis' home. Uh, Forrest come up East Main with his group. And it was a big time. And uh, the general came to town, which I guess is why I eventually wound up with a caboose. But the general had been in Chattanooga, and they called it the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Right. Well, it belonged to L&N. And so L&N decided to take it to Louisville and get it fixed up, and then they were going to tour it. All these towns that were having, like Murfreesboro, was doing a big celebration. And uh, they came out with storybooks and records and all kinds of little doodads you could buy. And uh, you could ride in Murfreesboro. You could ride the general to Smyrna and back. I still got my tickets on that thing. That is so cool. And the general was the subject of the great locomotive chase that Disney made a movie out of it. It was in books, and, I mean, it's it was a big deal. And now it's down in Kennesaw, Georgia, in a museum down there. You can go see it. Wow. Yeah, but it's uh, it was it was a good time to be growing up. And like I say, on Saturdays, uh, my dad would be at the store, he'd say 8 to 5, he'd be there at least from 7.30 to 6, if not right. later. Saturdays, a lot of nights we didn't leave till after midnight. I mean, we'd be there, and you had people all over the square uh, playing music over here, checkers over there. Christmas some, decorations. You know, somebody over here preaching. I mean, you just had a little bit of everything all the way around the square. Isn't that wild? And... Uh, used to be uh, Cousin Jack uh, was um, a real good guy. He drove a school bus, played the dobro. He could play anything. And uh, his grandson, Mickey Harris, is now, uh, that would have been Jack's daughter married, Mickey's dad. Mickey is the road manager and plays bass for uh, Rhonda Vincent. Okay. And he's been with them for years and real talented young man. But I remember him coming in the store, and my dad had a potato bug on the wall. It was a type of mandolin. looks kind of like a lyre that they used in medieval England. And uh, Daddy would get that old potato bug down and let uh, Mickey play with it. You know? Wow. So, uh, a lot of history to that square besides just what a lot of people would think. I know. I'm telling you. And I think the only place that's still there now, when I was growing up, is probably holding hardware. It's it I is isn't the, only it? the only one that's original. I remember Stickney Griffith. I remember yeah. that drugstore. You had Harrison's. Uh, you had Beckton and Westbrook's Grocery. That's where Uncle Dave did his grocery shopping. Daddy sold guitars. J.C. Penny was on the square too. It's just a block off. Yeah, and I'm, there was a hotel there before it was uh, J.C. Penny. He came to town when they opened up the new one, where a uh, Miller at the corner of Maple and College. The J.C. Penny, I remember they opened that up, and Mr. J.C. Penny came okay. you know to they, be here. They would that was a big to-do back then. They'd do an Easter parade every year, and kids could decorate their bicycles and ride them around the square, and they'd judge them on their outfits and their bicycles, and then you got to go to the theater, Princess, for 15 cents, or it might have been free. I don't remember. Right. It wasn't much. But see, everybody would go to Penny's to buy all their clothes and stuff, so the kids would win the prize. <laughs> they win the prize and, and, then, and they go back and buy. Uh, I can remember the Princess Theater, uh, and I think it finally 
in the seventies sometimes, but I do remember it. We hadn't been married long, and we went. Uh, we married in what seventy one in, and then uh, probably the following year, I think Gone with the Wind, I believe, was the last show they had there. We went, and then they closed it down. Uh, when I was in grade school, they had fifteen cent Wednesdays. And you could go and you'd watch these old real sorry uh, horror pictures, the crab, the crab monster claw, or <laughs> Ma and Pa kettle, and, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yeah, there's that kind of <laughs> stuff. And uh, I always thought that he managed it. And I mentioned that somewhere, and a guy said, "No, that Blue worked for his daddy. His daddy actually managed it." And I don't remember who it was, but there was a man named Blue. Do you remember? Do you remember Mr. Weathers Weatherly uh, in the courthouse? Oh, he was Aubrey. a he. Aubrey was a blind man. He, Dave, and I, my younger brother, we'd go in and try to get change and try to trick him. He knew us, even though he was blind. He could know the change. We'd give him a ten and or what, whatever. He knew exactly the change to give I'd us go, back. I'd go walking in the door, and he'd call me by name. I mean, just he, he was gifted and. He had a first cousin named Charlie Weatherly that worked at the park there at Cedars of Lebanon with me. He was a maintenance man and right. lived over at No Rain. But, uh, yeah, Aubrey was uh, a character. And then uh, you had um, Cheater Stockard. Do you remember Mr. Stockard? Cheater Stockard, uh, Gladys DeMint. Oh, Gladys was a She's character. a politician, too. She yeah. knew what was oh, going yeah. on. She had it down. And uh, I've got a picture somewhere I promised you I'd bring you. Of Gladys and, uh, and with the bag. Uh, well, I've got one of her and Jesse Messick in a convertible at one of the parades. And, well, I tell you what, in the Uncle Dave Makings Day, it's going to be at Hop Springs this year, I think. I uh, believe. Yeah. But you know what? I feel guilty. Miss Ann, thank you for coming in. Uh, Miss Mullins is here too. Thurman, thank you for your service. I feel guilty. We didn't get to Charlie Daniels. Oh, well, we didn't get to you being everybody a Everybody knows about Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> he was one of your dearest friends. Yeah, I worked for him from uh, over 40 years, and I worked for his wife and son. So, yeah. I've been to your place. It's a museum, y'all's place out yeah. there. I love, I love uh, hearing these stories. I think you should write a book. Um, thank you for your time. And I'd like to have you come back sometime, maybe Anytime. Uh, yeah, let us know. Veterans Day or something like that. Sure. Uh, thank you so much. You've thank been listening you, to the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. Uh, we've been here joined with uh, Thurman Mullins. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week, same time.